Hello everyone and welcome back to I'm not the book expert but she is. I am your first host today Rachel and I am not the expert. No you're not because I'm the expert. My name is Maggie. I am the other host of this podcast. <laughs> and we have a special guest joining us for today's episode. Um, I would like to introduce you all to Lydia. She is um, a really dear friend of ours from college and she is whom I would consider my top Percy Jackson expert. So we are very excited to have her as part of our episode today. Lydia, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Hi. So I don't know if I am Maggie's top Percy Jackson expert or not, but I'm very honored to be called then. Um, so <laughs> Percy Jackson has kind of been my happy place ever since junior high. And I think both of you guys can kind of relate to this, but when you're growing up as a little girl, you get handed a very particular kind of book. And it's usually either a children's classic like The Secret Garden or a story about a princess who runs an animal rescue on the side and is going to save her entire kingdom through the power of friendship and positive thinking. Mm hmm and I had nothing against those books, but I never really liked reading that much. It was just kind of something I would do if you asked me to. Um, until one day a bookstore near our house shut down and they had a closing sale. And my mom took me in and said, you pick one book, any book, and I'll buy it for you. And I saw uh, this book big, huge book with a golden dragon on the cover. And I picked it up, I opened it up, and I read, even before he got electrocuted, Jason was having a rotten day. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's the first line of uh, The Lost Hero, which is the sort of sequel series to Percy Jackson. At the time, I didn't know that wasn't the original series, but I was instantly hooked. It was the first book that had ever made me laugh. It was the first book that I had really read that was considered a fantasy story. And I devoured everything that Rick had written. I then discovered that there was an entire genre of fantasy that was waiting to be read. I think it was the following summer that my mother had to institute the infamous one book a day rule to get me to go outside. So when I think of Percy Jackson, it's the reason I started to love reading. It's the reason I became someone who wanted to write. It's probably the reason I had a classics minor in college. So a love for a lot of things connected with Percy Jackson has really blossomed beyond Percy Jackson, but it's still home base for me. It's I reread it every year for August for his birthday. And it's just my happy place. I love that. That is one of my favorite stories. Um, I remember you telling me that at least once in college, mm -hmm. like how you had read The Lost Hero before reading the Percy Jackson books. And it made me feel better about myself because I have also read many series like out of order. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I really like that. I also remember when we were in college, I was so excited because I was like, Lydia, they're teaching the lightning thief as part of the young adult lit class. And you looked me dead in the eyes and you said, 
that's the whole reason I'm taking the class, Maggie. Did I? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it was hysterical. It was the reason I took the class, but... <laughs> oh, good times. Good times. So, yeah, that's why I wanted to invite you on the show, just because for a long time you have been, like, my Percy Jackson buddy, and now I have other Percy Jackson buddies as well, but, like, you always have interesting things to say, and you always have, like, the really niche mythology knowledge that I can count on. I do my best. (laughs) Um, I do want to ask you, before we, like, really get started in the episode, have you been following any of the news about the Disney Plus show? The only things that I know from the Disney Disney Plus show are things that you have sent me. Fair enough. I know that when it comes out, I'm going to watch it, and that's that's about it. I'm not familiar with the internet. That's okay. <laughs> Being familiar with the internet is overrated. And overwhelming. So, Maggie, what have you been reading recently? Um, I just finished, let's see, this month so far, I have read... I finished Redemptor by Jordan Ifueko, which is the um, sequel to Raybearer, which I loved. And then I read Redemptor and I loved it too, even though it had some creepy ghost children, but they were creepy ghost children with a purpose. So I was okay with it. Um, And then I also read Horrid by Katrina Leno. I didn't really care for it. I mean, it was fine. It was a book. Um, I would look up trigger warnings for that if you're interested in reading it, though. Um, I started reading, I'm kind of like stuck in reading right now. I need to catch back up on Percy Jackson so I can keep being a good co-host. Um, but right now I'm kind of in the middle of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea by Axie O, and Pandora's Jar by Natalie Haynes, which is about Greek mythology and specifically the women of Greek mythology, which both of you have already read and I am just now getting to. (laughs) I loved it. You're gonna love it. It's I'm my... ex- Go ahead. I was gonna say at Barnes and Noble we have like the 100 club in quotation marks, which just means that you pick one book that you want to talk to people about a lot and keep track of whether or not you're selling it. And Pandora's Jar is my pick for the 100 club because so I talk to people about it every day because I love it so much. Good. Good. I have been sending both of you updates as I've been reading. I got um, the, the Theseus one today. I had very strong feelings about Theseus today, and they were not positive. I think that's fair, and how we talk about a lot of Greek heroes. Maggie yeah. and I were having a conversation earlier today about the morality of Greek heroes, and for at least a couple of minutes, the most morally outstanding Greek hero that we could think of was Odysseus. Which means that the bar is so freaking low. The bar is in the underworld and we are playing Limbo with Hades. We, we, he was eventually supplanted by uh, Orpheus, but that's just because he's the only other one we can think of that wasn't totally awful. Orpheus' biggest problem was that he loved his wife too much. So, like, that's not the worst. Depending on the version of the myth that you read, but yeah. True, true. 
Rachel, you look like you have something to add. I am just sitting here flabbergasted. Because they're both, they're not great, but if you think about what are the other options, you slowly realize that there are none. I know. I mean, who else are we going to pick? Agamemnon? Like, come on. I don't know why I picked that. I guess I'm in an Odyssey mood, which makes sense, but like. Or no, that's the Iliad. That's I don't know what Iliad. I'm talking not about. Not Perseus. Not Hercules. Hmm. <laughs> I am not just, Jason. I'm no. still <laughs> riding the high of knowing more Greek names than the one dude on Jeopardy once. <laughs> wait, which wait, which episode was this? I watched Jeopardy. This was like several weeks ago, but it was, was it the Castor and Pollux one. <laughs> no, it was a, a section exclusively on the Trojan War. Oh yeah, and, <laughs> and the guy just kept saying Achilles. Oh. I'm, he had to be right eventually. Exactly. <laughs> but like, you have so many other names. And I think the one he got wrong was like, this character killed his daughter. And I was like, oh, obviously. Yeah. And then he goes, ah, Achilles. And I'm like, you... wait. <laughs> wait a second. Man no. didn't even have a daughter. As far as we know, did he? He had possibly a son. That makes sense. But, but yeah, he was I, pretty young. I was ready to throw hands with Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember, because the question I was thinking of was a Final Jeopardy question, and I never know what's going on in Final Jeopardy ever. But I was sitting at the dinner table and hear from the background that the category for Final Jeopardy is Greek mythology, and I startled my parents by screaming, I bet it all! <laughs> <laughs> See, my family, whenever we get to the final Jeopardy portion, whenever the category is announced, we start just making guesses. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if they've given us the, the answer, like just the category. And every once in a while, every once in a blue moon, we get it just based mm-hmm. on the category. And that's mm-hmm. always the best part. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I love it. So, Rachel, what have you been reading lately? So, I have been out of school, which means I've had some more reading time. Uh, So, I have moved away from audiobooks recently, and I've been mostly doing Kindle reading, which is weird for me. But I have finished Bow Before the Elf Queen by J.M. Curl, and I read all 600 pages in, like, 12 hours. And that was not a good decision (laughs) for my sleep schedule. But then... My best friend and Maggie, when I told them, were like, yeah, that's kind of slow for you. Gee, thanks for the insult there. I mean, are we wrong? No, but that doesn't mean it didn't hurt. Rachel, I think what we're hearing is that you are such an outstanding reader that even an excellent pace is slower than normal. It is a compliment on both sides. Thank you, Lydia. Thank you for making me look good. I appreciate that. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) Um, And then I read All the Fields by Olivia Dade, Praise by Sarah Kate, I finally finished Sea of Monsters, uh, and Ryan Rule by Sadie Kincaid. And I'm currently reading Ryan Redemption, also by Sadie Kincaid, and The Path of Thorns by A.G. Slatter. 
The Path of Thorns has a very pretty cover. It has a beautiful cover. Oh. Came out in paperback just like last week. Indeed. Was I it would... really just last week? It was like two weeks ago it... when I got it. Yeah. Something like that. Huh. It's beautiful. Oh. I put it on the new in paperback table like last week, so. It is new in paperback. Mm-hmm. It's so Total crazy. tangent. You know what else is new in paperback? Probably. What are we thinking of? <laughs> For the Throne. Oh, yes. I mean, it's a month old well, now. It was but... only published in paperback, but yes. Yes. Uh, do you know what's coming out in paperback soon? Can I have a genre? Uh, <laughs> I will give you a super... Spe- I will give you genre, and then I will give you, like, specific subgenre. Okay. Fantasy YA. Uh-huh. Sub-Saharan African inspired. I know what it is. You know what? I don't know. Please tell me. Uh, a psalm... Or... Yeah, A Psalm of Storm and Silence by Rosie Roseanne A. Brown, which is the sequel to A Song of Wraith and Ruins, which I think everybody should read because it is so fantastic. Just going to put that out there. They are fantastic. I devoured them and then I got to meet her and she is so nice. She's also a Rick Riordan Presents author. Yes, she is. Fantastic. And she has a book coming out soon, which we've mentioned on a previous episode. She's also a Star Wars author. Yes. She's living her best life. She really is. And she lives in Maryland. Huh. Oh, which yeah, because really you met her, didn't you? Yes, I did. See, I listened to the podcast. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I met Marco Shiro, who is also relevant to this conversation oh, because it's Percy I'm Jackson. I'm so excited. I can't wait. So this has absolutely no bearing on what we're reading today. My three most recent books, aside from the Sea Monst- uh, the Sea of Monsters, is Ariadne by Jennifer Saint, uh, The Wolf Den by Elodie Harper, which is set in ancient Pompeii. Uh, a very good book, but definitely watch out for trigger warnings on that one because it's not a light read. And The Story of Greece and Rome by Tony Spofford, which is a history of Greece and Rome. Uh, I also recently read The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which is sort of a fun mystery thriller book that I immediately picked up to read a second time because it's kind of time travel and I wanted to see how the pieces fell into place from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and next on the list to be read, now that I've finished those, is Greek Mythology, A New Retelling by, oh my goodness, it's too far away for me to read the author's name, I'm sorry. (laughs) I feel that. I know it, but it's slipping from my mind. Fantastic. Sometimes you just can't keep everything in your mind at the same time. I have too many books and authors in there. Wait one second, I can find out. It's uh, Greek Myths, A New Retelling by Charlotte Higgins. Came out uh, just the end of last year, I think. Fantastic. Would you recommend Ari... I can never say her name. The the other book, Ariadne. Uh, 
it depends on what you're looking for. I was not enthralled with it. Uh, Jennifer Saint does a really great job of layering the mythology. Like, if you want to know about not just Ariadne's story, but also the dozens of other myths that are really connected to Ariadne's story, it's a mm -hmm. very good read. Because the references are pristine up until the end when she takes some creative liberty. But I felt like Ariadne really didn't get a life of her own in the way that I was hoping. Gotcha. The book feels very removed. Like, the storyteller isn't really connected with Ariadne's emotions. Mm -hmm. I also feel like she could have given Ariadne a lot of better reasons to go with Theseus than she did. Really, reading it just made me think of all the different ways I would want to retell that story. I That's just felt valid. like it wasn't quite there. Okay. It's been on my TBR for a while, but I was curious to know what you thought of it. I think it's good on some points, but mm -hmm. if you're looking for something like an enthralling fantasy to read, it's not quite there. I gotcha. We don't really have any news for this episode, unfortunately. Um, there has there have been some like leaks about the Percy Jackson show or like shots of where they're filming on location. So things are being filmed on location in case anyone was wondering. But nothing that I feel really confident in sharing as like this is objective fact. Um, if you want to find leaks, I just knocked something over. If you want to find leaks, you can find them elsewhere. But I will say, um, so last in our last episode, we talked about The Lightning Thief, the Percy Jackson musical, which was a delightful time. Um, this, at the beginning of July, um, Rob Rukiki, who wrote the music for The Lightning Thief, and Chris McCarroll, who starred as Percy, and Kristen Stokes, who starred as Annabeth, they were all on a panel together at BroadwayCon. Um, unfortunately, the panel was not live streamed, and it's not been recorded so there isn't really a way to watch it but I still thought it was pretty cool that like even like uh, several years after the show has gone off Broadway we still get it get to see it um get to see it like being recognized in the theater world which is cool um the only other thing I'll mention is um someone on the Reed Riordan staff which is not Rick Riordan himself but like people who write content about his work um, has been having a grand time writing the summer st status updates from the Percy Jackson characters. So you can, I'll link both of the um, articles in the description, but basically they're like little tweets and anecdotes um, written from the perspective of Rick Riordan characters about what they're doing this summer. Um, for example, Percy Jackson says, Annabeth and I are going on a road trip across the U.S. to see some of her favorite pieces of architecture. I keep reminding her that the last time we visited such spots, we were attacked by monsters and almost died. So if you want just, like, some fun little things to read, there's that. But that's about all we have for um, news updates. I love it. I know you do. Um, I will tell you, Rachel, this, the most recent one has um, a note from Nico, so. I love Nico. Why just Rachel? I want to know that. <laughs> I can tell you too. Lydia, I'm going to send you a picture of my computer. Um, hold. <laughs> oh, we've lost her. I, oh, told I, hold. I told you to please hold. I told you to please hold.
<laughs> Maggie has seen my computer a multitude of times. A multitude. Am I wrong? Maggie, uh, have you told people about the new covers that came out for the Percy Jackson books? Oh, we haven't talked about them. I don't know. It's just a thing. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll say that real quick. So there are, as Lydia mentioned, there are new covers um, for the original five Percy Jackson books. I forget when they started being released. I think it was earlier this year. Mm-hmm. It was like but, a month or two ago that I noticed them on the shelves. Ah. Oh, that explains it. Oh, <laughs> I love them. Uh, so there are two Nico stickers on there. Uh, but then I also have Sadie and Carter from the Kane Chronicles. I also have, oh, what's her name from Book Zoe. Three. Yes, I have Zoe. And I just, I think I have two more Nico stickers somewhere. Nico mm-hmm. is my favorite. <laughs> He's, He's a good a kid. He's the baby. But unfortunately, Nico is not in this book because no, we are still not. on book two of the Sea of, no. which is the Sea of Monsters. Um, just a bit early. We're just a little bit ahead of the game there. So, Percy Jackson has survived another school year in the mortal world, and he is ready to begin the summer at Camp Af. Ha- at wow, <laughs> let me try that again. He is ready to begin his summer at Camp Half. However, it seems that camp, the safest place for a demigod like Percy, might not be so safe after all. Not only that, but Percy's been having strange dreams about Grover, and it seems that the satyr is in serious danger. After being attacked on the last day of school, Percy and his new friend Tyson escape with Annabeth to Camp Half-Blood, only to find that someone has poisoned the pine tree that protects the borders from monsters. Not only that, but Chiron has been fired and replaced by someone much less friendly. The only hope for camp is to recover the mythical golden fleece, which is able to cure any ailment. But when Clarice is assigned to the quest instead of Percy, how far will he go to save his best friend and the camp that he loves? And just before we get started on our discussion, um, just a couple of trigger warnings for the book. This book includes um, ableism, animal attack, blood, bullying, cannibalism is mentioned, drowning is mentioned, homelessness, illness, um, imprisonment is mentioned, parental abandonment, violence, and there are themes of war as well. So just keep that in mind as we discuss this because those topics may come up in our discussion. Indeed. But now, the moment you've all been waiting for, I have two trivia questions for Rachel. All right, Rachel, are you ready? No. (laughs) I know. I had a really hard time coming up with trivia because I couldn't, like... I try to make them match the part of the book that we're talking about, and all of like the cool stuff from the Odyssey happens in the second half. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's all your fault. Yes, it is. Because I wrote both the Odyssey and Sea of Monsters. You're an immortal. Yes, I am. So, Grover stalls for time by weaving and unweaving a wedding dress. Penelope does the same thing in the Odyssey to avoid her suitors, but it's not a wedding dress that she's weaving. What does Penelope weave? I have a question. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to weigh in in on this or do you want me to (laughs) shut up? (laughs) I know you know the answer. Okay. 
Just checking. Uh, Can she phone a friend? (laughs) (laughs) Just wait. Just wait. How specific do I have to go? You can be pretty general. So it It is... is it is some Go ahead. tapestry. However, however, I think it is still an article of clothing or used as a form of clothing. And I'm going to g- <laughs> listen, don't pay attention to the logic that I'm going through. I'm going to say a funeral shroud because my mom is going to see the Shroud of Turin next weekend. <laughs> You know what? Your logic is a little flawed, but you're actually 100% correct. (laughs) (laughs) You keep saying, I'm not good at this, and somehow you just, like, just skate by on these. the right answer, somehow. (sighs) Yeah, so Penelope is her excuse for not marrying a suitor, because Odysseus has been gone for God's know how long. Um... And all the suitors are like, hey, Penelope, when are you going to marry one of us? And she's like, no, I have to make this funeral shroud for my father-in-law. It is the most important thing I've ever done. I can't just leave this man who's still alive without a burial shroud. And they're all like, oh, okay. And then like, man, she's really taking a long time with that burial shroud. And then they catch on to her trick. Do you know how long Odysseus might have been gone? Because I had an answer in my head and then I Googled it. Okay. According to Google and my head, it was about 20 years. Yes. That sounds about right. Trojan War was 10, and it took him 10 to get back home. Because Poseidon got take mad a, at him. Give or take a couple of months that it must have taken to get there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I that just, to me, says that Odysseus is not the good type of simp for Penelope. If he was not, like, trying actively to get home faster than 20 years. We we never said he was a good husband. I know. As a matter of fact, I don't think anyone in the history of mankind has ever said that Odysseus was a good husband. People say that Penelope's a good wife. The yeah. reverse is not true. I'm telling you, the throat punching would just... No, the tortilla slapping would continue. <laughs> How many tortilla slabs does Odysseus get? Not as many as Zeus. Odysseus might only get, like, 20. One for every year he was gone? Sure. One for every person he slept with other than Penelope on the way back? Yeah. Am Um, I allowed to say that? I'm sorry. (laughs) The Odyssey, or as I like to call it, Odysseus sleeps his way across the sea. The Atlantic, yeah. (laughs) Mediterranean. Um, So... Lydia, because you didn't finish listening to our last episode, which is totally fine. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> we, we are going to have a tier list of how many tortilla slaps characters get eventually. Like, oh. so Zeus, 10,000. Straight off the top, 10,000 tortilla slaps. He's the worst. Okay. Um, and then, I'm on board. Now Odysseus is only getting 20, so well, that yeah. one will probably be a lot less. But... <laughs> There's your context. Mm-hmm. There's your context. Okay. But we'll talk plenty about Odysseus later. Um, well, this your is... Your other trivia... Oh, sorry. Continue. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, this is as the closest we get to re- retelling the Odyssey, this book right Ain't here. 
Ain't that the truth. I have a lot of thoughts. Me too. But before we get to that, Rachel, which of these Greek heroes originally fought the Colchis bulls? Heracles, Jason, or Perseus? I don't think it was Heracles. So now I'm down to 50-50. 50-50, good shot. Can I give a hint? Sure. I don't know if this is going to be helpful or not, because I've never heard this. I'm just reasoning it out. Colchis sounds familiar because it's where Medea was from. So, I'm going to talk through my logic again. Okay. And then I'm going to give you my answer. Our, Our buddy Rick, Uncle Rick, I don't think would be so on the nose that he would choose a... He would choose Perseus as the one that he was emulating in this scene. So I'm going to go with Jason. I love how you chose Jason because of that and not because I said that Medea was from Colchis. I don't know that much Greek mythology, Lydia. Medea and Jason are connected in myth. Gotcha. Uh, Oh, that makes the Medea sunscreen comment a lot funnier if it is Jason. It is Jason. That is really funny. Then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, now this is from Wikipedia, so I could be wrong. And if I am wrong, I hope one of you will call me out. But when I was looking this up to fact check myself earlier, um, please hold. I got to find the page again. Um, apparently in the myth... Um, the reason that Jason is able to survive the battle with, or the, the fight, he's able to survive the conflict with the Colchis Bulls is because Medea gives him, um, a potion that he, like, rubs on his body like sunscreen. That is totally right. That's hilarious. That's how it goes. So then I was like, oh, the sunscreen comment in the, in the book is. So there you go. It's Medea's journey with the Argonauts is so funny because you just, you get used to uh, the heroes are saving the day and then there's a lady on the ship. But so many of the times Medea's like, okay, you guys sit back. I'm going to get us through this issue and then we'll continue on our journey. I love that. I'm two for two right now. You are two for two. I have so far gotten all of them correct. You surely have. I don't know how. I'm impressed. I'm terrified. (laughs) But that's enough talking about everything. We should actually probably (laughs) talk about the book now. Let's wrap up the podcast. (laughs) That's the end of the episode, everybody. That would be our Um, shortest episode. It definitely would. (laughs) Um... All right, let's talk about the characters in the Sea of Monsters. Um, Lydia, the way we've been doing this is we talk about the characters and like plot stuff, and then we kind of bookend it in the other part two. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're back with Percy Jackson again. Um, I just want to mention he is a confirmed skater boy because his mom mentions taking him to the skate shop after school. So mm-hmm. I just want you to imagine skater boy Percy Jackson. That is my contribution to this conversation. 
We also have that reference with the chariot races when he's talking about how dangerous it is and he says it's even an even better adrenaline rush than skateboarding. Mm-hmm. So it's confirmed multiple times. Yes. And I, just going off of that trail, I love, like, Chaos Percy, who's just like, yeah, this thing that was super dangerous and was probably going to get me killed, loved it. Best day mm-hmm. of my life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Nothing else um, to add to that. But we see him go through his last day of school. At, I don't even remember the name of the school in this book. I don't really care. It's kind of... It's the it's the hippie school. It's the hippie school. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite little anecdotes is also Percy opens his notebook where he keeps a picture of Annabeth that she sent him. It's which Mary is Weather. Just, oh, sorry. I was going to say Go it's ahead. called Meriwether College Prep, by the way. Huh. I'm just going to keep calling it the hippie school. That's accurate. <laughs> Percy has so many schools. We can't keep track of all of them. Mm-hmm. He mentions he went to military school at one point. Okay, here's here's my reasoning. Percy stays at some schools longer than others. I am willing to bet military school was three days tops. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's perfectly there valid. There's too much stuff that could go wrong in a military school for Percy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Nope. It's fine. We I'm also get Annabeth Sally back. allowed that. I Maybe can get she behind was that. desperate. Maybe. I, I don't think that... I don't think it was Sally who put him in there. I think that what had happened was he was kicked out of one school and the only school that was open and would accept him as a student was the military school. And then Sally Jackson was like, no, not happening. And then immediately pulled him out. Not my boy. Uh, Alternate worse reality. Gabe had a say. (sighs) Which seems unfortunately the most likely to me. Yeah. yeah. You're not wrong, but I don't like it. <laughs> it hurts. Consider this. He would have gotten a high five when he got kicked out of it for that one. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't want you there anyway, honey. Mm-hmm. Celebrate with blue pancakes, man. Yes. So at Meriwether College Prep or the Hippie School, Percy doesn't really have a lot of friends, which is because he's befriended Tyson, who is homeless and was taken in by the school as a community service project, according to the book, which, first of all, big yikes. As Percy puts it, I think he says, like, it's so that the school could feel better about themselves for, like, taking care of someone else, which I'm like, "Mm, bad vibes, everybody, bad vibes. Um, but Tyson is the target of bullying, and since Percy is his friend, Percy also becomes the target of bullying. Which, we can talk more about Tyson in a minute, but I just want to, like, Percy has such a big heart, and I love how he always finds, like, the underdog, and he's like, hey, I'm gonna be your friend, Yeah. Just, I was messaging Maggie about this the other day, but just the theme with like first Grover, 
and then Tyson, it's like you expect this kid who describes himself as a problem child, which is not his words, I'm sure, but this like the school counselor talks to me about an anger management issues. I set the chemistry room on fire. Uh, I'm just in trouble all over the place. Also, there's this kind of weird-looking kid in my class who's very lonely. He's my best friend now. He has access to all of my stuff, and if you say anything <laughs> mean to him, I'll hit you. Yes. Which is, this is part of the reason I love Percy Jackson so much. It's just like, yes, mm -hmm. this is perfect. I can get behind this. One of my most frequent annotations in Sea of Monsters was me commenting on Percy's emotional intelligence throughout the entire book. Mm. Because even when he does get frustrated or when he does get upset, especially around Tyson, he is conscious of his emotions and not letting them seep out and affect Tyson, even when Percy's upset about it. Mm. It's kind of one of the things that I really like about his dynamic with Annabeth too, is this is going to sound a little silly, but you get used to like the male and female leads. It's the girl who's emotionally intelligent and who's sort of on the calm side of things and the guy's the fighter. But mm -hmm. with Annabeth and Percy, it's like Percy's the heart of that team. Like, and I'm not, don't mean that as anything negative towards Annabeth, because she is also fantastic. But if there's someone who's going to look, to see, like, someone who looks lonely or someone who needs help and decide to do it, it's going to be Percy. Mm-hmm. I love that. I never thought about that. Like, I, I'm sure it's crossed my mind, but, like, I've never, like, thought about that specifically with Percy and Annabeth, just how Percy really is kind of the heart of that friendship. And yeah. Let's talk about Tyson a little bit. And then I want to circle back to Annabeth because she's also got a pretty big role to play here. Um, so Tyson, we come to find out in this book is actually a Cyclops. Um, so he, through a series of events, they get attacked at the school and they have to flee to Camp Half-Blood. They get to camp and we find out Tyson is a Cyclops. Not only is Tyson a Cyclops, but Tyson is also, um, as a Cyclops, a son of Poseidon. Um, all Cyclopses, Cyclopes, Cyclopes, I forget the word, Cyclopes, um, are children of Poseidon. So there's some knowledge for you, I guess which technically makes him Percy's half-brother. Um, of course, that also makes him, in the eyes of many other demigods, a monster. Cyclopes are not usually friendly towards demigods um, or mortals. So that kind of creates a weird dynamic where you've got this monstrous character and now Percy is connected with him for better or for worse, and Percy's feeling kind of like an outcast again. He's has some very conflicting feelings about this, which we can talk about later. But Rachel, I know you have some feelings about Tyson. Do you want to talk about them now or do you want to save them for later? I want to save them for later. Because I want to talk about his entire development. So I want to do it in part two. Um. I have a feeling that half of my thoughts on Tyson would probably go best with whatever Rachel is going to say in part two. Um, 
the one thing I will say that I find so interesting in the Sea of Monsters is Percy's conflicting emotions about finding out that Tyson is his brother in the first part of the book. Because I will say it's not like there is anything that has happened to me that could compare to that. But I do feel like Rick captures really well the trouble of resenting someone and then feeling bad that you resent them. Because it sort of feels like you're a snake biting your own tail at one point. It's just he's upset. He's not mad at Tyson, but he is upset that he feels like a comparison is being drawn. But then he's mad at himself for feeling like he's upset at Tyson when nothing is Tyson's fault and he actually cares about him a lot. So Percy is dealing with a lot of really conflicting things in that chapter. And you see him like actually arguing like, Tyson isn't really my brother like it doesn't count and I always that was always one of those moments where I'm like oh I don't like that you did that but at the same time I can understand why and he doesn't really have a good solution especially since he and Annabeth are arguing at that point so he can't even talk to her about it yeah and Annabeth is his closest friend because Grover is off somewhere in trouble and we don't know where Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so speaking of Annabeth, Annabeth um, and Percy get into a bit of an argument here because Annabeth does not like Cyclopes in particular, and she has reasons for it that we find out later, but suffice to say for now, she does not like that there is a Cyclops at camp now. She has grown up since the Lightning Thief, though, I feel like. She's She seems a little bit more mature. I mean, she still is a 13-year-old girl, but she does seem more mature than she did in The Lightning Thief. I like that she has grown up a little bit, and she feels more like... Not that she wasn't well-rounded in The Lightning Thief, but she does feel a little bit more rounded as a person in this book. Maggie, going off of one of your rants slash hot takes from last... from uh, The Lightning Thief... You mentioned how her dyslexia and her struggles are just kind of overlooked. But in this book, Mm -hmm. on page 108, she's... (laughs) (laughs) I highlighted it and everything. She specifically struggles with the spelling of Cyclops. Yes. And it's... She, like... She gets really frustrated because I I noted that, too. Because, yeah, for... Just to recap, because it's been a couple episodes since we talked about the Lightning Thief. I had a bit of a rant about how... A common quality among demigods is that they have ADHD and dyslexia. We talk about it with Percy a lot because Percy is the narrator. So he mentions like, yeah, that was my ADHD again. Or it's like, oh, I had a hard time reading that because of my dyslexia. Mm -hmm. We kind of overlook it with Annabeth sometimes. um, Partly because she isn't the the character whose perspective we're getting. But also, I think just... I My whole rant was about how... A lot of times these are things that go that don't get diagnosed as much in girls because plethora of reasons that we don't have time to get into. And so I always like those moments where it's like, 
even Percy just kind of seems to remember like, oh yeah, Annabeth is smart, but she's also dyslexic like me. She is also kind of uh, on the, I don't want to say an outcast, but you know what I'm trying to say. Like she also struggles with the same things I struggle with. And I sometimes forget that. Um, So I, I like those moments and I don't want to say I was glad that she was struggling, but I'm glad that we got mention of that Mm -hmm. again in this book. I think we almost need mention of it with her more than we need it with Percy because with Percy, he's like, this is all part of, I'm not really an academic person. That's just kind of not my thing. Whereas with Annabeth, we have this picture of her as very sharp, very wise, always very, very smart. And it's important for us to see like those two aren't opposites, you know, when I think it's very easy with the way our school system is set up to think of it that way. Speaking of our school system, I would say that Annabeth has more tactics for dealing with her ADHD and dyslexia because she has spent so long at camp and she has literally been working with people who also have dyslexia and ADHD, who have developed those skills that have been taught to them by other people, whereas Percy is going through the same struggles, but at a higher rate because he does not have that same passing down of knowledge. Annabeth has been given better coping mechanisms, for lack of a better word, whereas Percy probably hasn't. But yes, our school system still sucks when treating people with disabilities. Rachel says with a smile. It's a rage smile. It's not a genuine one. I know. I can see it in your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as, Lydia, as soon as you said school system, I saw Rachel's eyebrows go right up. And I was like, oh, here it comes. Not that I think it's a bad rant. (laughs) I said it for her. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. It was a very quiet rant this time. So, like, we should be happy that it wasn't me shouting or, like, literally crying, which is what I did last time. So on the scale. (laughs) We're, like, dead center on the Mm -hmm. rage and crying spectrum. It's great. (laughs) We'll make a chart. Sally also returns in this book. I don't have much to say about her. She's only really in one chapter, but I love her. Um, We love her. We we all love her. I do want to ask, there isn't really an answer for this that I remember. So Sally can see through the mist, right? Like we established that in Mm -hmm. this book, especially. Maybe. No. I don't know if it's this book or the next book. It is established that Sally can see through the mist. Um... Did she know Tyson was a Cyclops the whole time? Because she has met Tyson before. I have always assumed that the answer was yes. I did not assume the answer was yes until this book. Like, until I this reread of it. Mm-hmm. I do, I do have a follow-up question about the mist. Sure, go for, for it. For you guys to ponder. So... If we think that Sally knew Tyson was a Cyclops the whole time, do we think she just didn't tell Percy because she wanted to... I don't... Why wouldn't she have told Percy? Did she assume Percy knew too? If I had to give an answer... If I had to think objectively, I would say that Rick just didn't think it through, which is fine. Because sometimes he just misses things. (laughs) 
Oh, I've got a side note about that, but that should be part two. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) Carry on. No, I'm going to wait for part two. Continue. (laughs) I was just going to say, so it could just very well be like Rick mentioning this thing and then like not thinking out all the implications because that's what readers do. But do we think she just assumed that Percy knew Tyson was a Cyclops and just never brought it up? Yes, Rachel. I'm going to I'm going to change my answer and say that she does not know that Tyson is a Cyclops. Because when we do establish that she can see through the mist, she also talks about this is later on, but she talks about how as she's been getting older, she's been struggling to see through it more. So I think that she cannot tell that Tyson is a Cyclops, because I also don't think that she wouldn't tell Percy. Right? I feel like if she Mm -hmm knew she would say something to Percy and I also don't think that she would push for Tyson to get a spot at Merriweather. I think that she would push for Tyson to be in some sort of mythological other place. Mm-hmm. Unless, oh, here's a spicy take, unless she had talked to Poseidon and was like, yo, you have a Cyclops son in the middle of New York. What are you going to do with him? And he said, eh, figure it out. Make him friends with Percy. Tis all. That's that's another tortilla slap on Poseidon. Yeah, Poseidon's got like 5,000 on the scale of zero to 10,000. He's like five. Thousand. (laughs) I think You could support the answer that she does not know by the fact that she tries to call social services about the fact that Tyson is living in a back alley. She tries to mother him kind of like she's trying to mother Percy. My answer to this question would be that she does know that he's a Cyclops. She does not tell Percy because she knows he isn't ready. At the beginning of this book, Percy really struggled. Percy has not yet figured out what this book is teaching us, which is narrowing the definition of what it means to be a monster, which I could talk more about when we get to another particular character in this book that has been set uh, side by side with Tyson. But Percy is still figuring out that not all Greek monsters, and I'm putting in quotes, are monsters in the sense of dangerous or even inhuman, if that makes sense. Whereas Sally, being the lovely person that she is, I always figure can accept just about anyone. So in my mind, I think she knows. I think that's why Tyson doesn't end up getting like a bunk next to Percy in their apartment, which I think might actually be possible if it were, if she didn't know. But that's always the way I've approached it. I'm going to circle this back to our Lightning Thief discussion as well, because in the Lightning Thief, Maggie, do you remember how I said if Percy had sympathized any more with Medusa, he would have joined Luke? Mm Mm-hmm. I think that this goes hand in hand with that same idea. Right? But the only reason he doesn't go and join Luke is because Luke is very anti-Tyson. 
specifically anti-Cyclops. But like, right. I, cause, cause we see Percy specifically struggling with his emotions around Poseidon in regards to Tyson. Mm -hmm. It hurts. It's almost more like Percy knows that he cares about Tyson. Like that is never really in question. Right. It's more about how Tyson affects how Percy feels about Poseidon. Yes. And I don't know where that sentence is going. Um, Hot take. Percy cares more about Tyson than he ever will care about Poseidon. Yes. That's like a lukewarm <laughs> take, but yes. <laughs> if he could only save one, he would die and save both. But still. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot where my thought was going. It is fine. I want to circle back to some of these other characters as we talk about the plot more, um, but just so the audience knows, we are also going to talk about Luke. He's back. Clarice is also back. Chiron is here for like half a chapter and then he's gone. Um, and we do meet another god in this um, part of the book who might be Rachel's favorite, one of her favorites. I think he's my favorite god in the Percy Jackson books. Interesting. We also get introduced to a couple of other campers. Um, they don't play a big role in this book. We get introduced to Travis and Connor Stoll, who are the new um, co-counselors of the Hermes cabin. They are not twins, which I feel like is important to mention. Everyone always kind of assumes they're twins. They are not, which means that their mother must... I forget how, how the Tumblr post of yore goes, but it's something like she is either a world-renowned thief or, like, America's best postal worker. Yep. To draw Hermes twice. <laughs> yes. She stole his heart twice. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Guys, that was the worst joke I've ever made. Why are you laughing? I've, I think I've heard you tell worse, actually. Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> So those are the Stoll brothers. We also get introduced to Charles Beckendorf. Rachel, do you want to tell us about Beckendorf? I love Beckendorf. Beckendorf is probably my favorite minor demigod. Um, he is a son of Hephaestus. He is said to have no... Like, there's nothing that he can't make, and he has no qualms with Tyson. Like, he takes Tyson under his wing and just, like, loves on him and teaches him how to make stuff, and I love him. So, let's talk about the plot. <laughs> yes, the plot. Percy's, Percy's been having some bad dreams. Um, Grover seems to be in distress. He's wearing a wedding dress for some reason. Um, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And we come to find out that he's created some type of bond with Percy, that he's able to communicate with Percy through his dreams. Um, and that is the only way that he's able to send a distress signal, basically, to say, hey, um, could you come save me, please? But we don't know all that at the beginning of the book. All we know is Grover seems to be in some danger, and Percy's very worried, and rightfully so. 
but but Sally's trying to put on a brave face because it's like, dude, you almost made it through the last day of school. Like, congratulations. Um, famous last words for Percy Jackson. <laughs> famous he last does words not... for the last day of school in general. Percy Jackson does not make it through the last day of school because he's attacked by Canadians. <laughs> uh, sorry to any Canadians that might be in the audience, a.k.a. Frank. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That is one of the best scenes in The Son of Neptune. Uh-huh. Where, where Hazel's like, what are those? And Percy's like, Canadians. And Frank just looks at him like, what? Excuse me? So that was a tangent about Canadians. But <laughs> the monsters that actually attack Percy are the... La- La- Someone else say it. Lystragonians. Lystragonians. They are cannibals, and they are from the far north, which is why they... Wow, I totally almost said the wrong name, which is why Annabeth calls them Canadians. So they managed to survive this attack and accidentally caused some explosions at Meriwether Prep. The school probably deserved it, so we're fine. Um, Also, Annabeth punches the bully and says, lay off my friend. Yes! We love Annabeth. And then the bully is just like, wait, that's the girl in your notebook. <laughs> wow. Both brain cells woke up this morning, huh? Mm-hmm. I don't know if the other brain cell knows that the other one exists. There's no connection between the two? No. Sort of like the two, a horse's two eyes, they can both <laughs> see, but they're not connected. Yeah. <laughs> the two brain cells, got it. Mm-hmm. Annabeth summons um, a cursed taxi to take them to camp, um, driven by three women who have exactly one eye and one tooth between them. So there's always one that doesn't have anything. Yep. Which, yes, it is about as disgusting as it sounds. See, the thing is, there are two medical things that I cannot handle, and it's teeth and eyeballs. I once told my roommate that the one medical thing that I can't handle is saliva, and she laughed so hard that she spit in my eye. (laughs) (laughs) Entirely (laughs) accidentally. (laughs) Oh, that's so bad. Sorry, continue. That was not related to anything. No, that was great, though. (laughs) But yeah, the Gray sisters are gross. Yeah, we don't like them. Um, But they do get the gang to camp um, in record time. And good thing they do, because there's some trouble at camp. This is where the cultist bowls come in. They are mechanical bowls. They are machines, and they are very hot. Mm -hmm. And set everything on fire. And they have broken the defensive barrier around camp. And Clarice is the one leading the defense to protect camp from these monsters. And actually doing a really good job at it. Yeah. Even Percy mentions that, like, he's pretty admirable of her. He's like, you know, like, differences aside, he doesn't say this exactly, but he kind of says differences aside, um, Clarice is really brave doing this. Like, because these monsters will burn you to a crisp. Mm-hmm. 
fortunately, Cyclopes are immune to fire and Tyson is able to um, help in the destruction of these bulls. But at this point in the book, Percy doesn't know that Tyson is a Cyclops. So Percy tells Tyson, like, stay out of the way. I don't want you to get hurt. Mm -hmm. Like, this isn't happening. Um, Yeah. And then Annabeth. Yeah, on page 43, um, one of the bulls is charging after Percy and Percy can't get away fast enough. And Annabeth is like, Tyson, you need to go help him. And Tyson can't get through the barrier because he's a monster and the barrier is to keep monsters away. Annabeth is the one that gives um, Tyson permission to enter camp. She says, I, Annabeth Chase, give you permission to enter camp. Um, And then Tyson is able to come through and he yells, Percy needs help. And he comes and stops the bull from hitting Percy, knocks it back. He's still standing there. Percy's like, oh my gosh, my friend has just like been burned to a crisp. And, but Tyson is still standing. His clothes aren't even burned. Um, The bull must have been as surprised as I was because before it could unleash a second blast, Tyson balled his fists and slammed them into the bull's face. Bad cow! (laughs) I love Tyson. Tyson is the one who comes in and saves the day. And then Percy's like, how, how, how? Why Why is he not, like, on fire? And Annabeth is like, Percy, you doofus. Have you ever looked him in the face? And Percy's like, well, no, not really. Um, and, of course, Annabeth has known Tyson to the Cyclops. And now Percy knows that Tyson to the Cyclops. And soon after that is when Tyson is claimed by Poseidon, much like Percy was claimed in the first book. And that's when we get all of Percy's pretty complicated and big feelings about everything, which we've already kind of covered. And meanwhile, um, Chiron has been fired because Talia's tree has been poisoned and Chiron is being blamed for it. So he's been kicked out and the activities director is this dude, Tantalus, who's a real piece of work. That's not the word I thought you were going to follow up with. But if you use the other word I was thinking of, I would have had to edit it out. Indeed, which is why I said the word that I chose. <laughs> Without getting into it too hugely, I was just realizing this time around, because I reread this book a little earlier than I normally do to be able to talk about it today. And... It was just occurring to me because I was already thinking about how many parallels there are between the Sea of Monsters and the Odyssey. And hospitality is actually a pretty big theme in both books. Like mm-hmm. we have that moment where, where Hermes uh, is asking to sit down and Percy's like, okay, sure, whatever. He says, your hospitality does you credit. And we get the way that the gang is treated as they stumble across these very many different like monstrous homes and things like that but it's interesting that in this book they choose tantalus to be the activities director who was sort of the epitome of bad hospitality in greek myths because he had fed the gods his children so it's just that is not a metaphor that is not a metaphor he literally fed the gods his children 
So it was just interesting to me because that was a connection I had never made before that among the many other like little nudges towards that theme of hospitality, there is the camp director that has changed as well, the activities director. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is not the first time that I've read The Sea of Monsters since reading The Odyssey, but it is the first time I've really paid attention to it. And you're right, that theme of hospitality does show up a lot in The Sea of Monsters as well, which is very fitting. Um, But I also just want to ask, Rachel has raised this question before as well. Who put Tantalus in charge of children? Yeah, what the actual heck? What the, oh, here we go. Little rant. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) His job is to work with children and he literally fed his children to the gods. I'm sorry, that would be a basic background check and every single mortal parent should be up in arms against the entire camp right now. I'm going to guess it was Dionysus. (laughs) But even, so Dionysus, I'm sorry, I have feelings. Dionysus even gets frustrated with Tantalus by the end and is like, dude, you're terrible. And then literally, like, just flicks him away. Like, I, Mr. D seems to tolerate Tantalus for like a brief time because he's like, hey, something new and weird at camp. Sure, to make my my punishment more tolerable. At least someone here is more miserable than I am. Um, but like as time goes on, I think he gets more and more irritated with Tantalus, but he can't find a good reason to get rid of him mm-hmm. until... But like, even even the gods, why are they okay with Tantalus being there supervising their, you know, demigod children when they are the ones that are literally punishing Tantalus? Rachel, your argument depends on one crucial thing, which is the (laughs) gods caring about their children. The gods do not care. Okay, alternate thought. Rachel, you're absolutely right. But you know who else has been in charge of Camp Half-Blood for the last decade or so? The god of drunken parties. I just... See, but Lydia, you you don't know how I feel about Dionysus. (laughs) Uh, I'm not criticizing Dionysus. I'm just saying he wouldn't be the top of my list as a babysitter. The gods have not been making good choices with their camp staff. The gods are choosing Camp Half-Blood as a method of punishment for immortal beings. Like, if you are in trouble, you have to work there. Therefore, Tantalus, being one of the biggest criminals out there, is immediately picked as, oh yes, new punishment, we'll put him in Camp Half-Blood. This is, of course, horrible logic because he's in charge of their children. But none of the gods have ever been accused of being logical, except for maybe Athena. But if they still want their demigod children to go on quests, that means their demigod children have to survive long enough to get a little bit of training. You are absolutely right. I'm just saying that the gods are stupid. (laughs) The gods are stupid and I don't respect them. Yes. Ah, it just gets me so heated. Fortunately, we don't have to deal with Tantalus all that much. Because he only shows up in a couple of scenes and then we're away from camp. Good riddance. 
So we have a chariot race. One of the things Tantalus decides is, hey, we're going to bring back the chariot races, um, which are deadly and dangerous, because why not? Um, but they are a classic Greek pastime, so of course everyone is excited. Percy and Tyson build their chariot together. Unfortunately, the race is interrupted by the, there's another big word that I don't know, the Stymphalian birds. Stymphalian? Amphibian? Sure. <laughs> the scary birds. The scary birds. The murder um, pigeons. <laughs> the murder pigeons. I like murder pigeons. So the race is interrupted by the murder pigeons. Fortunately, Percy and Annabeth are able to figure something out to get rid of them, which is to scare them off with bad music from Chiron's collection. Sorry to any... Um, Dean Martin fans? <laughs> yeah, sorry to any Dean Martin fans out there, but Percy Jackson is not one of you. <laughs> Neither are the murder crows. Murder pigeons. Neither are the murder me. crows. Murder pigeons. Murder crows is a different book, Lydia. Yes. It's also the name for a group of crows. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> the murder crows. We'll rename. Yeah, that's a good rename. I like that. <laughs> How many? Six of them. Percy gets blamed for saving the day. That sounds about right. Yeah. Tantalus is like, if you guys weren't so bad at driving your chariots, the birds wouldn't have attacked, which seems like flawed logic. But again, no one has ever accused the gods of being logical, as Lydia already said. So I know he's not a god, but like we're lumping him in that category for now. He also gets tortilla slaps, I'm assuming, so we can lump him in there. Uh, Actually, I wrote at some point in my annotations... If he were not already dead, I would murder him myself. That's fair. With a tortilla. (laughs) (laughs) Which would work really well. So could the tortilla make contact with his face? That's the question. I think, I think so. I think so. It it can when it's being used as a weapon? Yes. I think so. Would he (laughs) he be happy about this or not? No, because he still can't eat it. I think he would try. It's the closest he's gotten to food in years. On page 83, (laughs) Mm -hmm. halfway down the page, I wrote, if he weren't already dead, I would kill him myself. I got my annotation exactly correct. There you go. I'm proud of you. He's on the insta-kill list, Maggie. Okay. On that note, um... (laughs) Since they're being blamed for the birds attacking, for the murder pigeons, um, Percy, Annabeth, and Tyson are punished. And during that time is when Percy and Annabeth finally are able to kind of talk things through and come around from their argument. Um, This is actually a pretty good scene. And they talk a little bit about the Golden Fleece and how they think this is what is going to save Camp. And Percy kind of puts the pieces together where he's like, oh, Grover found the fleece. If we find Grover, we find the fleece. Mm-hmm. I have two things I want to point out in this section. First, when Annabeth and Percy are talking, Annabeth is giving the story of the fleece. And within that story... Uh... Oh. <laughs> Europa? <laughs> yes. Your Europa dies. And... Annabeth makes this offhand comment and is like, but that's not really important. And Percy, very, just very short, says it was probably important to her. 
Percy is the first retailer of Greek mythology to look at how the women felt. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, the, like, per, er, Annabeth just doesn't say anything about it, and I'm just like, ugh. But that's that divide, not divide, but, like, that's the difference between them again, right? Like, Annabeth is very focused on, like, the facts, and she's not necessarily thinking about, like, she ha- she has a mission. She has the mission to save mm-hmm. camp. Camp is the home, only home that she really knows. Yeah. So she is much more focused on here's the steps that we need to take to get the fleece to save the camp. And Percy's like, hey, um, I know this person's been dead for a long time, but, like, she probably had feelings, too. Percy, Which is what makes them a good team. Percy is the emotionally intelligent of the two. Mm-hmm. He's the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on page 88, when they're talking about the Bermuda Triangle being the Sea of Monsters, mm-hmm. um, I wrote, and I'm reading my book sideways, you know, Percy is actually really smart. It would take my AP Lang students longer to figure out the Bermuda Triangle than it took Percy. Just saying. So I don't know if that speaks exclusively to Percy's intelligence or how frustrated I was with my AP students as I was reading this the first, like, the, because I started it a long time ago um, as I was reading it. So probably the answer is probably both. Probably both. Although I do think, like, I don't know about you guys, I feel like the Bermuda Triangle is not as much of a part of pop culture as it is now. (laughs) Um, I feel like there were always, like, weird stories and legends about the Bermuda Triangle when I was growing up, and that just doesn't seem to be part of, like, what the kids do these days anymore. That Mm. and sand. Yeah. (laughs) Quicksand, you would believe quicksand whirlpools. That makes an appearance in here, too. Quicksand and whirlpools, you would have thought was going to be a problem that you had to face in regular everyday life based on the media you were consuming as a 10-year-old. Yes. So Uh far, I have not used any of my skills on how to escape quicksand. Yeah. It's exhausting. Seriously. I could have used that brain space for so many other things, but nope. Quicksand. Mm Mm-hmm. I wonder what today's version of that is. If you're a Gen Z kid in the audience, um, hit us up on social media and tell us what your irrational fears are. To my, the, like, three students who listen, what what are they? Not the real ones, because we've all got a lot. Just the irrational ones. Mm-hmm. Hey, I have an irrational fear of taxidermy, and unfortunately, I'm reading an advanced reader copy of a book based on taxidermy. But Why? Uh, because <laughs> that's what I was wondering. Interesting. <laughs> Lydia, I like to torture myself, okay? Okay. <laughs> we don't have to talk about that right now. Let's move on with the Sea of Monsters. So Percy and Annabeth have this realization and they know where the Golden Fleece is. The Grey Sisters gave them coordinates. And they're like, we have to tell camp. We have to get a quest. We have to save camp. They bring all this to the forefront of camp. And Tantalus, in a very Tantalus move, says, okay, let's have the chariot race ri- chariot race winner lead this quest, who happens to be Clarice. And Clarice proudly accepts the quest. She goes to the Oracle, even though Percy's like, whoa, 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 wait. Grover, my best friend, is out here in danger, and you're going to let Clarice save the day? I don't know about this. Side note. If people were better diplomats than they were, the only thing Tantalus said was that Clarice was leading the quest. 
Percy could have gone. He get she gets to bring two people. I mean, not that she would ever pick Percy, but true could have worked something out. This is very true. I never that never crossed my mind. I did have a note about this if I can find it again. Um. I will say, objectively speaking, I do think Clarice is a pretty good choice for this quest because she has shown a lot of bravery and she is a powerful demigod in her own right. Yes. I am going to completely disagree with you and say that she was the worst choice that he could have made to lead the quest because she was the one leading the charge of protecting the camp. You think he Fair. left camp defenseless without her? Yes. Tantalus is an asshole just trying to destroy everything. That's fair. Can't argue with that. I think she was a good choice. Maybe not the best choice for this exact moment, but I don't necessarily think she was. Every opportunity. It is not her. What am I trying to say? I think her. It is not so much a question of her skills, but rather a question of, was this the right call to make for the protection of camp? I I am going to continue to disagree because I, every single time we see her at a point where she could have succeeded, she failed, right? Uh, when she, I will cut this out so we can put it in part two, but when mm-hmm. she is on the ship and she's trying to get into the sea of monsters, the ship explodes. When she does eventually reach Polythemus, Themis, he is literally like taunting her and she is taking the taunts and taunting him right back and eventually spoils Grover's like only line of defense, right? So every single time she could have failed, she does fail. Hot take though. This is a total tangent. I'm so sorry. Hot take. In all of those instances, Clarice is playing the role of Odysseus. When she taunts Polyphemus, she is Odysseus. When she sails into the Sea of Monsters past Scylla and Charybdis, she is Odysseus. So why do we criticize Clarice for the choices that she makes, but we don't generally criticize Odysseus for making those essentially same choices? Because I haven't read the Odyssey since I was a freshman in high school. I'm not saying that specifically about you. (laughs) I also criticize Odysseus a lot. I would say... To take a somewhat middle ground here, I don't blame Clarice for the moments in which she fails because her quest has been set up so that she needs help. She's not supposed to be able to lead it on her own. That's act- It's in the Oracle, and she was supposed to take two other campers. She didn't, or she thought she didn't. It turned out that she brought Percy and Annabeth. But, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's like, it wasn't her choice. But she succeeds with the help of two other people, just like Percy would have failed without the help of two other people. Mm -hmm. I think this really is Clarice's quest. She adds a lot to it that would have otherwise been not accessible like the ship that they're sailing in is only available to her because of uh, her relation to Ares and his gift she charges forward into a lot of things where 
even though it probably wasn't the smartest decision, it actually worked out to the best. Mm -hmm. She's the only one who's able to keep fighting Polyphemus alongside Percy. Sorry, I don't know if I should have said that because it's part one. But I just, I do actually really like Clarice as a character. I think she was set up to fail and does remarkably well for someone who is set up to fail. I will say it was a poor choice to center on the quest because she is such a good warrior that they did need her at camp. Tantalus is constantly sabotaging the borders of the camp whenever he can because he wants the camp to be destroyed and go home, I can only assume. I think she was a poor choice, but I'm not mad at her about that. I can get behind that. Sorry. I'm just glad I'm not the only person who's defensive of Clarice anymore. I okay. I don't dislike Clarice. I just don't like her until Battle of the Labyrinth. Here's my, my thought on Clarice. She's not a favorite character of mine. She is a bully. And I'm not gonna right. cut her slack for that. Correct. But one thing that I think is true of Annabeth that is also true of Clarice. A lot of strong women in the Percy Jackson series have, I guess what I'm going to say is they have the privilege of not always being nice. Mm -hmm. Annabeth, I think, is a better example of this because she is a character who is not always super nice, but she's perceived as strong and her sometimes uh let's say bad attitude is never seen as something where like she needs some kind of comeuppance or she needs to learn her lesson it's part of who she is and it goes along with her strength and I think Clarice sort of fits into that category as well though I wouldn't go so far as to say that all her behavior fits in that category I think Rick gives her the chance to be a person as opposed to just being this nice lady on the side you know they both get the chance to be heroes even though they aren't always the quote-unquote kindest exactly but Maggie I interrupted your Clarice heralding the quest so what is your thoughts on it what are your thoughts oh I I was just going to say I think I think Clarice is not the worst choice maybe not the best choice but not the worst choice um we've talked about that at length um and but I think it's important Percy's not in it for the glory he's in it to try and save his friend mm-hmm and a lot of people think he's in it for the glory. That is another thing. This is total side note. Percy is never in the quest for the glory, which is one of many things that sets him apart from the heroes of Greek mythology, which we will talk about more in other episodes, but just pin that for the back of your mind there. Perseus is no Achilles. Yes. Which becomes super ironic later on, but I'll keep that to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Perseus is no Achilles until he is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But even Tantalus is pushing Clarice, like, okay, go see the Oracle now. And even Clarice seems a little uncomfortable with this. And Percy mm-hmm. notices. Um, I think he almost feels a little bit, sim- not entirely sympathetic towards her, but he might be a little bit like, like, I understand your feeling, kind of like, because he remembers what it's like, maybe not with Tantalus in charge, but he remembers what it's like to have the eyes of everyone on camp, in camp, watching you. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Clarice goes off on her quest. Percy's like, oh, I just want to go save Grover. I need to leave camp. And he's off brooding on the beach when he is joined by Hermes. I love Hermes. And Hermes comes by to offer Percy some sage or maybe not so sage advice along with some resources for his adventure. Rachel, you have some thoughts about Hermes. Slam in the crochet down again, except it's a lot quieter this time because it's a bigger piece. My biggest rant about Hermes in this book is about George and Martha. His snakes. Yes. I gotta take the glasses off. When did they get the names George and Martha? Because those are not like ancient Greek names. Maybe we're to assume that he never bothered to name them before modern times, which is really sad. But then did George and Martha pick their own names? Because they are sentient enough to do that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So did, did Hermes just name them, or did they pick their names? And then are they named after George and Martha Washington? Because I think that's what we're led to assume. I like, never thought that, but you're right. <laughs> Listen, if there were going to be one reference in the Percy Jackson books that I did not get, it would definitely be the U.S. history le- reference. Let's be real. That's fair. Isn't it mentioned that George Washington was a child of Athena? I it is. So. In The Lightning Thief. Yeah. So I'm just... so Which, yeah, is its own thing. Don't need to talk about U.S. history right now, but... But we do a little bit because I'm pissed off about the naming here. Maybe George and Martha have just decided to change their names throughout the millennia. Like, they were like, oh, let's have some nice Greek names for a little while. Then we'll have some Roman names and some some whatever other names. And then they're like, yeah, the, this, these George and Martha folks, this, this Washington guy, he seems like a nice fellow. Let's name ourselves after them. Maybe you just get bored of your name after a couple thousand years. It just pisses me off. Then why don't we have the gods renaming themselves? Because they the gods do don't change. That's a good answer. I'm just throwing it out there. It just pisses me off. This Lydia, you have not had to hear my rantings about the Percy Jackson books since I first read them. Uh, mm-hmm. Maggie has had the the displeasure of hearing them all i don't know if it's displeasure (laughs) it's just you get stuck on these things and i don't have good answers for you and the best answer i could come up with is yeah rick probably didn't think about it that hard probably i have a cut there are a couple of overt mistakes in the books too (laughs) Like, even not even not going into the more subtle things that we're talking about, just on-the-surface mistakes. Listen, I love these books to death. I never said they were perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just... I can't. I can't. I, uh, 
But in the more uh, heartfelt side of things, moving mm-hmm. into, we're going from a, a funny rage rant into a sad bit. Um, the whole reason Hermes is talking to Percy is to convince him to go, like, run away from camp, but specifically to try to talk and save Luke. And he has, he being Hermes, has this line that says, Dear young cousin, if there's one thing I've learned over the eons, it's that you can't give up on your family, no matter how tempting they make it. It doesn't matter if they hate you or embarrass you or simply don't apologize or appreciate your genius for inventing the internet, which is him just bragging about himself. But this has such a double meaning to it because, yes, Hermes is talking overtly about wanting to go and save Luke, but it's also tugging on Percy's heartstrings towards Tyson and his dad. I thought you were going to go the other direction in that, because you're absolutely right, but you know who else is related to these people? (laughs) 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 Which is also true. Mm -hmm. I think it's also kind of gives Percy a bit of a wake-up call to say, like, he's had mixed feelings about Poseidon and Tyson and this whole thing, but he's like, I can't give up on Tyson. It's I, he doesn't say that to himself, but I think that that kind of gives him a little bit of a wake up call. Cause from this point forward, he's not as touchy about Tyson. Mm-hmm. Like he's not as sensitive about the subject of them being related. And part of that is probably that they're away from camp where other people are jeering at them. Yeah. But I think even when Annabeth, is a little bit like aggressive towards Tyson. Percy is more defensive of him. And he's like, Annabeth, you need to like cool it. Mm-hmm. I think, um, oh, sorry. What were you? Go ahead. Go ahead. I think there's also something sort of unexpectedly lovely about the fact that we're getting this from Hermes. Mm-hmm. Because obviously he's the one most in the position to talk about staying on the same side of your family even through a lot of difficulty because of Luke but you also I was just thinking about earlier today he's also the god of strangers so isn't he in the best position to recognize what it means to be family Hmm. very much so for sure so Hermes gives the gang some equipment that they need and sends them off on their quest to find Luke on his yacht, apparently. The man's got a yacht now, I guess. Is it a yacht or is it just, is it a cruise ship? It's a straight up cruise ship. Oh, it's a cruise ship. I'm, you know what I'm getting? I'm getting it mixed up with the movie. In the movie, it's a yacht. It's a straight up cruise ship. How dare you? (laughs) Okay. You can't invoke (laughs) that name here. I know we're going to talk about the movies in an episode where we roast them, but... And I'm not going to be there. (laughs) No, but there is one funny line in the Sea of Monsters movie where Percy's, like, trying to fight Luke, and Luke's like, bro, don't walk on my roof. And it's so, like, out of character and weird that it cracks me up, and that's what I think of when I think of the Princess Andromeda for some reason. I think it's very in-character for book Luke, out of character Mm -hmm. for movie Luke. Agreed. There are multiple funny lines in the Sea of Monsters movie. You just, they're only funny if you're not dying. Yeah. It's like, they're all hilarious, because, like, where did that come from? 
But you're also suffering. Yes, exactly. Kind of like college. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like being an adult. Yep. So they make it to the Princess Andromeda, and it's late, and they all just kind of crash for a bit. Um, I don't know why I never noticed it before, but the Princess Andromeda is named after a figure in Greek mythology. I don't know where I missed that before, because Percy says it outright in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And the princess, the real Princess Andromeda, real in quotation marks, um, was rescued by the mythical Perseus. And Percy mentions, he's like, yeah, that Perseus always won. Me? Eh, not so much. Percy is still admiring the heroes of the past, which is another thing to think about. Mm-hmm. A side note, um, the story with Andromeda is half of the reason I did not include Perseus on the possible most moral heroes list. Because the lesser known half of that story, which you may or may not know is that when he and Andromeda get married, the wedding guests get a little rowdy, and his solution is to bust out the head of Medusa and turn half of the wedding party to stone. Just I think I remember that. It's like, I read it once somewhere weird, and every time I hear Andromeda, I think, oh yeah, what the heck was that? I mean... I get overstimulated pretty easily, and I feel like that is the appropriate solution. The problem is that it's a permanent solution. I don't care. (laughs) Well, you're already married, so I don't need to remember not to go to your wedding. (laughs) But maybe my students should be more fearful of coming to class. Yeah. That is for them to decide. But I don't have a head of Medusa, so... That we know of. Maggie, I'm not good at keeping secrets from you. This is true. So, do I have a head of Medusa? I think the statuary would give it away. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't have any. Exactly. This is true. Um, isn't wasn't that in the Metamorphoses about their wedding party? Is that in there? I feel like I remember reading something about Perseus's wedding. It might be. The reason I remember it is because uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne did a uh, weird mythology. I mean, it's actually pretty standard, but a children's mythology retellings. And oh, um, it's mentioned in Pandora's Jar. Yes, it is, mm-hmm. and I own it, but um. It's, he doesn't call him Perseus. He goes with the name Bellerophon. And it took me a while to figure out that they were the same person. Gotcha. See, Rachel, sometimes you do change your names throughout stories. That wasn't Perseus's choice. Alright, we're not gonna get on this <laughs> anymore. Anyway, Luke is on the Princess Andromeda, and he's getting ready to cause trouble. Um, He's been collecting some monsters and heroes and other allies to fight for his cause, and with everyone who joins his cause against the gods, another piece of Kronos comes up from Tartarus and helps him reform. Um, He also mentions that he has powerful friends and sponsors with money. Who are they? 
I need, I would like, this is my thing that I want answers about. Do we learn this at any point? I don't think we do. I, I think it's, cannon. would you like to share? It's Jeff Bezos. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. You know what, that checks out. Jeff Bezos. Except, okay, technically, Rachel, Jeff Dark Bezos does not exist in this universe. No, that's like a canon fact. Jeff Bezos does not exist in the Percy Jackson universe. So to make it more generalized, uh, there are a bunch of million and billionaires who are scorned demigods and they join Luke's side, but not physically, just monetarily. In addition to I was going to gonna that, say the U.S. government. Why oh, would the U.S. Well, government contribute to the downfall of the West? Have you not looked you at the U.S. government lately? think they haven't done already? <laughs> they think they're doing right. We had the same thought. <laughs> we really Sorry did. to interrupt Maggie. No, Why? it's okay. Okay. Alternate route. Uh, U.S. politicians, not the grunt, like, government workers. What I yeah. was going to say was going with your idea of other older successful demigods who wanted to who had been monetarily successful this is the same book where we discover that by linking a chain restaurant to a monster's life force you can spread them all over and apparently some children of hermes did that in the 1950s when the chain restaurant was really born so i'm going to say some uh, brothers of older brothers of uh, luke got very successful with their chain restaurants. So uh, McDonald's fueled the uh, war against Kronos. With the older sister, Wendy's. Yes. America runs on Duncan, but the war against the gods runs on McDonald's. <laughs> I was going to say, are you loving it yet? <laughs> <laughs> we have problems. We... Eh, maybe. I would agree, but I don't think this is one of them. No. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about Luke's story about Artemis and are they bears? It's been a while since I read that scene specifically, but his two... um Half bear, half human. Yeah, those dudes. Agrius um, and Orestes. Not Orestes, but something similar. Yeah. I was going to look. I'm going to find it now. Should I have looked at it before? I maybe. Yeah, I Agrius and Orius, Orius. I can't pronounce it, so I say Orestes in my head, but that ain't good because that's somebody There's else. There's no. Yeah, Orestes is somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and Callisto, but, who is unnamed. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So the story between these two dudes is that um, Aphrodite ordered their mother to fall in love, and she was like, "No, I don't want to do this." So the this their mother flees to Artemis, and Artemis takes her in as one of her huntresses, um, who are all sworn to eternal maidenhood, um, never falling in love, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But Aphrodite takes revenge and she curses the woman to fall in love and um, has children. And as a result, 
Artemis abandons her, which is a very typical like story that involve involving Artemis and Aphrodite. I feel like. I think this is uh, to quote Percy, one of those stories that makes demigods feel all warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just. I really like Artemis. She is one of my favorite figures in Greek mythology, but she's also not great. <laughs> I and think Luke does have kind of a point here. I like her as... She is up there with favorite goddesses in the Percy Jackson version of her, mm-hmm. even with stories like this. In just the regular canon of mythology outside of Percy Jackson, she does not make it up very high for me. Yeah. Much like most of the gods in mythology, they often take their vengeance against innocent mortals rather than the people who really wronged them. Much like Hera often punishes Zeus's lovers instead of punishing Zeus himself. Um, Artemis often punishes mortals for whatever infraction they may have caused, even if it was by accident. I always think of the story you told me, Lydia, about the boy and his hunting dogs. I forget his name. It's Actaeon. Yeah. You saw Artemis bathing? Yes, accidentally. And she was so offended that she... uh, cursed him so that he turned into a stag and his own hunting dogs tore him apart there's a an artist on tiktok who made a book like a picture book that she like hand printed of that story Mm. it's not a pretty story no nope iphigenia being sacrificed she was sacrificed to artemis Mm. she was We hear about her being the protector of women and young girls, but in reality, it feels more like she's the warden of women and young girls. Like, she doesn't seem to step in and do a lot of protecting. It seems more like she steps in to correct them when they do something wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that actually kind of becomes a pretty big deal in the next book, which Artemis, when we actually meet Artemis Mm -hmm. in the Titan's Curse. Um, but even just this story here, like, this is another version where, like, I, I do generally like Rick Riordan's Artemis. I like the way that she's presented. I think it's a fair portrayal of her. This story, mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, you know, this is, Luke's got a point. This is another moment where I'm like, you know, Luke might not be right, but he's also not wrong. Mm-hmm. The gods can suck a lot. Yes. But the gang is able to escape the Princess Andromeda and they make it to safety um, in a shelter where Annabeth once hid out with Luke and Talia when they were on the run together. And they're there and unfortunately soon after they encounter a Hydra. And Percy, being impulsive, tries to cut off the Hydra's head with his sword and he is in fact successful. But as we all know, you cut off one head, you get two more. And things are not looking great because it's three, well, it's two demigods and a cyclops versus a hydra. Who should, who comes in to save the day but Clarice with her ship of dead Confederate soldiers? And she bypasses the problem by just hitting it with cannonballs instead of cutting off any of its heads. 
Mm-hmm. Which I think it's a perfectly valid way to solve one's problems. Yeah, they're thinking like, okay, how do we cut off the head and keep it from growing back? It's just like, well, you could attack the body. Mm-hmm. There's a novel idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do want to talk real quick. Um, Percy mentions, he specifically says he's jealous when Annabeth talks about her time running with Luke and Talia. And... I think you could read that on the surface as Luke, as him being jealous of Luke. But I also think he's a little bit jealous that Annabeth had someone to look out for her. And Percy had Sally, don't get me wrong. But Percy also had a lot of confusing things going on in his life that he didn't understand. And I think in some ways he didn't necessarily feel like he had another demigod friend to look out for him, like an older demigod to look up to. And Luke was kind of that person for him for a while when he first got to camp but he didn't really have the same kind of bond with him that Annabeth did or does. I don't know. Maybe that's a hot take. I think that's valid. I think, cause I remember at the end of the lightning thief, when Percy and Luke are having their conversation at the beginning, Luke is asking if he misses being out on quests. And he's like, what, with monsters attacking me every three feet? And the answer is still yes. It sort of mm-hmm. reminds me of that a little bit. Because I think it's not so much even the action and the excitement as it is... Oh, Percy is a very friendship-centered person if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and being out on the quest with his friends seems comforting to him in a way so the idea that Annabeth had that with Talia and Luke I can see striking some jealousy maybe of Luke but also of Annabeth the idea that they had each other when he didn't have anyone Mm mm-hmm He likes that sense of camaraderie. Yes, 100%. And the relationships. Which I think is also why he and Clarice only get close to getting along while they are on quests, not in camp. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they are also friends working together, even if they're not really friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is almost a sense of we are working towards the same goal. Mm -hmm. And we will work together, but... Yeah. But yeah, Clarice comes and saves the day. She takes the gang aboard their ship. And that's kind of where we end this half of the book. That is the first 10 chapters of the Sea of Monsters. Um, We haven't even gotten to the Sea of Monsters yet, mind you. There are still many monsters to be seen. Ha ha ha. Oh dear. Ha ha ha. Ha. Um. Yeah. Real funny. Um. (laughs) But yeah, anything else you guys have to say about the first half of the book? I I realize we're kind of wrapping up quickly, but I don't have much else to say about this part. I think we've talked about everything. I've met my, my quota for rants for the first half, so. Oh, good. Yeah. So you're satisfied. I'm Does satisfied. that mean it resets for the second half? Yes. It's oh, like, for it's sure. It's like a quota per episode. Good to know. <laughs> Thank you for being on this episode with us, Lydia. Yeah, thank Thank you you for having me. Of course. And I assume you will be joining us for part two. 
I'm realizing now that I made comments as if I would. I don't actually know if you want me there. <laughs> we would love uh, to have yes. you. <laughs> I'll stick around. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening to this week's episode of what is the name of our podcast? Um, I'm I, not the book expert, but she is. Lydia's got it today. <laughs> Lydia's got it. Um, and yeah, we will see you next week with part two of The Sea of Monsters. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of I'm Not the Book Expert, But She Is. You can find us online at bookexpertpod.wordpress.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at bookexpertpod. If you enjoy our show, please consider leaving us a review on our website or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll see you again soon.